Yeshua, which just simply means continuous reading. And the reason we do that, if you weren't here during the introductory material, is because the opening verses of the book of Revelation say, blessed are those who hear the reading of this book. And so we thought we would just read through it as I am preaching through it in order to uh, receive that blessing, whatever that happens to be. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the church in Thyatira. And before we do that, I thought we'd do a little bit of background. If you remember in the introduction, I said there are several different approaches that people tend to take when they read the book of Revelation. Really, there are four major ones. The first approach that people tend to take uh, when they study the book of Revelation is called the preterist approach. And the preterist approach, basically, when they read the book of Revelation, more or less say that everything in the book already happened. In other words, everything in the book of Revelation is a past event. Okay? That's what the preterist says. On the other hand, you have the futurist and what does the futurist say? If the preterist says everything in the book already happened, the futurist says almost everything in the book is yet to happen. In other words, it will happen sometime in the future. And then, of course, you have the historicist. Preterist says everything in the past. The futurist says everything in the future. And the historicist says everything is happening right now. Remember, in other words, the, the historicist, another way to uh, refer to these uh, people who read the uh, Revelation this way, is that it's sort of newspaper theology. In other words, they read the newspaper and they see a war. You read Revelation and you see a war, and then there must be a correlation between the two. And then finally, if the preterist says everything happened in the past and the futurist says everything happened in the future and the historicist says everything is happening right now, the idealist at some level says, I don't know what's happening. But we can still read the book of Revelation and glean spiritual truths from it. And so that's important. So the four major uh, approaches to Revelation, preterist, uh, futurist, historicist, and idealist, do you remember which one I said we're going to use? None of them. And we're using what I'm going to call this morning the bestest. Um, (laughs) And really, what's what's the bestest way to interpret the book of Revelation It's really to use, I think, a gospel-centered approach. And what is a gospel-centered approach to the book of Revelation? It's just like a gospel-centered approach to the book of Genesis and all the rest of the Bible. In other words, all 66 books of the Bible, the the main purpose of every single one of them is to point to the person and work of Jesus and to help us understand the person and work of Jesus better. And so when you look at the book of Revelation, just as you would look at the book of Romans or the book of Acts or any other book, what you're looking to see is how does the book of Revelation help us to understand the person and work of Jesus better. And remember I gave you an overarching theme and the overarching theme, which sort of you could see how people would gain some, some past, some future, and some now, is that in the, one of the, the overarching theme is just this, is that Jesus in the past has won. He's already won the definitive victory over our sin. He will win in the future. He will, he will culminate all things, and he is winning right now. And so with all of that said, um, where are we so far? If you remember, there are seven churches. The book is a letter. It's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy, but it's also a letter addressed to seven churches. And the, the lights beside these churches correlate with the message to them. If you remember the church in Ephesus, Jesus threatened to snuff them out. They were, they were great as far as orthodoxy. They believed the Bible. In fact, when people came and taught something that was wrong, they actually kicked them out of the church. That's how much they cared about the Bible. And Jesus actually commends them for that, by the way. 
not the kicking out necessarily, but the, the, well, he does actually, to be honest with you. But what they lost is they didn't love. They said they lost their first love. And remember, that had to do with their witness to the outside community. In fact, every one of these letters, at some level, the purpose of every one of these letters is at some point in this church's witness to the outside world, they're faltering or they're in danger of faltering. In Ephesus, we're told you forgot your first love. And then the next one we see is Smyrna. Smyrna is, has a green light because there was no, they had nothing bad said about them. There was no complaint against them. Jesus had nothing against them. In fact, they were experiencing persecution, and Jesus basically exhorted them, hang in there. And he opened that letter with, remember the one who has died and risen again. That, that you are bound to the one who has died and risen again. So even if things get hard, even to the point of death, remember uh, who your Savior is. And so he encourages them to, keep, to hang in there. Last week we looked at Pergamum. Pergamum was a relatively loving church on one hand. On the other hand, they, were, they had compromisers within their church. It's a little bit different than today. You see the, the letter to Thyatira and the letter to Pergamum are, are in some ways dealing with the same issue. It's only a matter of degree, really, when you get to the letter of Thyatira. And so Pergamum, what were they encouraged to do? They were encouraged to deal with the people who would compromise within their midst. And so that brings us to this letter to Pergamum. And the, remember the churches in the middle, when you get, after you go Church 1, Ephesus, Smyrna, the three middle churches, they could go either way. And so what do we know about Thyatira, first of all? One thing that we know about it is it was the smallest city of all of the seven churches in Revelation, of the churches that were represented. In other words, I think I told you before that if you had to correlate the cities of the seven churches with cities in the United States, Ephesus would be much like Manhattan, cosmopolitan centers, financial center. And then we looked at Smyrna, and Smyrna was a, was, it wasn't a huge city, but it was a decent-sized city. It would be sort of like Atlanta and last week when we looked at Pergamum, Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, so it would be like Washington, D.C. And then when you get to Thyatira, it, it's sort of like, um, I think it was generous last service, it, it, it would sort of be like Yakima. I, I mean, it, 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 it's worthy of mention on the map, but that's about it. I mean, people aren't flocking there, really, on one hand. On the other hand, what's interesting is although it's the smallest city, it has the longest letter. So something to think about. What do we know about them? That it eventually became an industrial and manufacturing center. Because it, the city itself was started basically as a garrison in the middle of nowhere because when armies traveled, they had to have somewhere to resupply. And it was near the Lycus River. And it basically was on the road from Pergamum to Sardis. And eventually it became a a pretty big industrial center, a manufacturing center. And what they were known for, primarily, you've, if you've read the Bible before, you know uh, one of its most famous residents was the first convert in Europe. Her name was Lydia, right? a seller of purple. Thyatira was known for its purple dye, its purple cloth, but also they were known for their bronze work. And we're going to look in a minute. Remember, the, the first line of any of these letters is a clue to what the rest of the letter is about. Remember, it mentioned the bronze feet. And finally, the thing that's maybe most important in Thyatira is the fact that it was dominated by the trade guilds. Like we know almost nothing about the city of Thyatira, Thyatira except the fact that trade guilds ruled the place. In fact, the Roman government really didn't do much with them. They didn't enforce uh, emperor worship that much. 
But the trade guilds in Thyatira, I guess because the industrial and manufacturing base, were absolutely everything. And so as, if you look at Thyatira and the trade guilds, remember part of the problem in all the churches of Revelation is in order to work, you had to be a part of a trade guild. So if you were a bronze worker or a cloth worker or, or a furniture worker, you had to be part of a trade guild. And being part of that trade guild, they would often have feasts and they would all honor the various gods of that trade guild. And the question for a Christian was whether you participated in that or not participated in that. And so that was the problem in Pergamum. That's going to be an even bigger problem here because of who is in the church at Pergamum. I'm skipping that, by the way. Head straight to verse 18. Let's read verse 18. As, I, as we look at the opening clue, I skipped the outline because the outline is almost the same and it just, it does, I don't want to use the time on that. But remember, as I told you before, the opening vision in the book of Revelation that John has, that has this, this description of Jesus, and most of the letters open up with part of that description. And the description that's given is a clue to what the rest of the letter is going to be about. And so let me read that. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the, the three phrases I think that you need to, to know about here that stand out are the phrase Son of God, and then the eyes that are like flame of fire, and feet that are like burnished bronze. This is the only place in the book of Revelation, by the way, that John uses the phrase Son of God. In the opening vision, he, he, John saw one like a son of man. And so the question is, why does he say he used that here? Why does he say the words of the Son of God? Now, most people think, you see, in the city of Thyatira, the, the patron saint or the patron god of Thyatira was the god Apollo, the god of war. And you remember who Apollo was? Apollo was the son of Zeus. And one of the ways Thyatira would boast about themselves, remember all these cities had some version of what we would call chamber of commerce, is that the, the, the patron god of their city was the son of God. And what Jesus does when he writes to them and says the son of God, the real son of God, actually writes to, to you. You might think Apollo is a warrior and you might have a statue of Apollo with, with his swords and with his shields, but what the message you're getting now is from the true and real Son of God. And who is the Son of God? He is the one who has eyes that are like a flame of fire. What does that tell us? If you're thinking, okay, what is this letter going to be about? If you've never read it before, it's going to have to do with, with some aspect of Jesus looking into the heart and soul of people for some reason. Remember, those eyes penetrate. Those eyes get, are sort of all-seeing. What is he going to see? And then we also see that his feet are like burnished bronze. And that has to do with, with some sense with governing. It has to do, in, in another sense, with war and with ruling. Remember, the feet of the nations are mixed. They're mixed clay and iron, but Jesus has feet of, of burnished bronze, which means he will crush those nations that oppose him. And so that's what's going to come up. So the opening clue is the fact that this is the Son of God and that his eyes are piercing and that his feet are going to crush those who oppose him. And that leads to the next verse. 19, the strengths. What are the strengths in Thyatira? Verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance. And it's interesting that this church, the two churches really in the book of Revelation out of the seven that have the most problems 
also have the most uh, things about which Jesus compliments them. In other words, they have have big problems, but they also have a lot of good things going for them. And so Jesus says to them, I know your love. They have love. They have faith. He says even your service. The word service there is actually a pretty important word. It's the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. And what it's saying is he knows, I know that you're very outwardly faced with regard to your service. In other words, in Greek, there's a word doulos, which means slave. You know, you slave away at something. But diakonos means you're actually serving. You're caring for other people. He says, I know you do that. And then he says, also your patient endurance, because you guys are hanging in there. What else does he say about them? And this is important. He says, I know that your latter works exceed the first. And what that makes them is the opposite of Ephesus. In other words, remember what happened at Ephesus? He said he gave them compliments, but then he says, but you have left your first love. And what he's saying about uh, Thyatira is not only have you not left your first love, but your first love, you are actually doing better now than you were before, which makes them the, they're the opposite. And I think John is doing this on purpose, or Jesus through John does this on purpose, because while they're the opposite of Ephesus with regard to their love, Unfortunately, they're also the opposite of Ephesus with regard to their orthodoxy. In other words, Ephesus is is big on orthodoxy and and holding true to the Bible. On the other hand, they have no love. Thyatira has lots of love, apparently, but they're willing to tolerate things that are not orthodox or things that are not in line with the Bible. And most churches, by the way, swing from one end to the other. In other words, most churches either struggle with being orthodox but not particularly loving or being very loving but not particularly orthodox. And the goal, of course, is to be both. And so Pergamum's, the problem at Thyatira, rather, is the fact that while they're the opposite of Ephesus in love, they're the opposite also in orthodoxy, and that's the problem. So we look at the problem. First of all, the problem is that there's one teacher there and at least two different students or types of students that are causing trouble in the church. Either they're causing trouble in the church or just the very fact of their existence is that which is what bothers Jesus. And let's read the text and see. First of all, let's look at the teacher. Verse twenty, he says, I have this against but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. So remember I told you how horrible it would sound, I think, if you got a letter from Jesus and he said, Tommy, you're pretty good at this, this, and this, but, but I have this against you. And the thing that he has against him, he says that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now the difference between Pergamum and here, remember he told Pergamum, there are some people among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, teaching that somehow emphasize sexual immorality and, and um, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Somehow there are, people, there, there are some people among you, and you need to deal with those people. But what he's saying about this woman Jezebel is that she's actually tolerated. In other words, the church knows that she is there teaching this stuff, and still she's, she's tolerated. And Jesus, I have this against you. And why does John call her Jezebel? Is this a person, or is it a movement? Most scholars think it's actually a person, But John, for whatever reason, I think because he wants us to look back to the Old Testament, he doesn't call her out by her real name. He calls her out by a name that that would describe her. 
He calls her Jezebel. If you remember back in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 24, 21, King Ahab married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel proactively, she proactively set out to lead Israel into worship of the Baals and into sorcery. In other words, it wasn't like Solomon where he just married a couple bad eggs, you know, and, and because of that he got drawn away. Uh, Ahab married basically an evil woman who proactively sought to undermine the God of Israel and to lead people astray. And so what John is saying here is that this woman, this teacher, whatever she's teaching, she is proactively doing it in order to lead the people of God astray. It's as simple as that. It's almost a technical term. And what is she teaching them? It says she's seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, what's the problem with that? Why, why would it be an issue in the first place? Well, the issue is that probably the trade guilds, anytime you went to a dinner at the trade guild, they would make some kind of sacrifice to the patron saint of bronze working or the patron god of purple dying, and then they would serve up that sacrifice to you. And in a lot of places, it got pretty debaucherous, apparently. In other words, we tend to look at our culture and think, gosh, it's getting pretty pornified or it's getting pretty racy. If you look at, watch any television these days, we have nothing on the ancient Near East. That doesn't excuse us. But it was not uncommon to, for a party to denigrate into some kind of, of orgy. And that's what the kind of thing was going on. She encouraged it. Not so much she encouraged the behavior as much as she probably encouraged Christians. It's okay if you do that behavior in order to fit in. Or she may have even encouraged the behavior as a way of, of saying, you know, if grace is true, then you should actually do these things to show that you're not bound up by it. And what she's totally missing, among other things, is Acts chapter 15. Remember the first big issue that the church dealt with was the question of what to do with Gentiles and how Gentiles are to interact with, with the pagan world. Let me read to you Acts chapter 15, just a couple verses. It's at the end of a big discussion. They write a letter to the churches. And it says, For it, seems good to, it, it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you, do, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. In other words, when the apostles got together to decide what is it that the Gentiles ought to, to make sure that they are conscious of if they're going to live out the Christian life, there were only two things. Avoid meat sacrifice to idols and avoid sexual immorality. Everything else you're freed up to do. It doesn't mean they could break the law or anything like that, but it just meant these two particular things, just don't do these. And Jezebel, the very two things that she was teaching are the, things, the only things that the apostles had forbidden. In other words, was she rationalizing? What was she doing? We don't know. But either way, it took, it took quite a bit of a hubris, I think, for her to actually teach that. And so you can imagine if the apostles said, avoid sexual immorality and meat sacrifice to idols, and there was actually someone in the church that was teaching that those things were okay, where Jesus and John writing what Jesus said would be uptight with that. So what's the verdict on her? Verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. 
Now, is he saying that she is just uh, committing sexual immorality in the church all the time? Probably not. What, what it's transitioned here to is the fact that her sexual immorality is basically uh, adultery with God. In other words, she won't turn back from, to, to the true God. She won't turn back to what God has wanted from her. That sexual immorality here probably means something like spiritual adultery. And so what God has done, said, since she won't repent of her spiritual adultery, I'm going to take her from that bed, the bed of adultery, and I'm going to place her on the sick bed. In other words, if she won't stop doing one thing in this bed, I'm going to put her in the bed of sickness. In other words, I'm going to stop her, Jesus says. And that leads us to the next to her students, and he says, to those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Now, one thing, if you're a note taker, I want you to keep in mind, we're going to see the word works come up three times today. And there's a progression in this whole idea of works. And so these people here, he, her first students, they're two different kinds of people that are interacting with her. And the first people, John basically says, those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation. And who are these people? I'm going to call them basically dabblers. And what do I mean by that? It's like they're, they're people that weren't completely sold out to her. They weren't, they weren't her followers. And yet they could, they could, she seemed to be making a lot of sense to them. And so they, they sort of listened to her and they could rationalize things and they could use her as the way they would rationalize things. And Jesus says, those people, I'm going to bring great tribulation upon. They're not sold out to her, but they're associated with her enough that he needs to stop them. And remember, tribulation in the, the Bible is basically when the, the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God come into conflict with the values of the kingdom of this world. And he says, notice what he tells them to repent of. He doesn't tell them to repent of their sin. He doesn't tell them to repent of, of anything. He tells that, this group of people to repent of her works. In other words, by following her, that's not good enough. If you're seeking to be saved, if you're seeking to understand the gospel, if you're seeking to live it out, the works of Jezebel are not good enough for sure. So you need to repent of her works. And that leads, of course, to the second student. And who are the second students? Well, they don't last long. Verse 23a, he says, And I will strike her children dead. Who, who are these people? I'm going to call them her minions. Right? If you've ever seen Despicable Me, right? They're, they're the ones. They're her minions. They're the ones who are completely sold out to her. They serve her. And, and, and in some sense, they're more loyal to her than they are to the pastors of the church and the elders. That they think not only is she what she's teaching right, but they will defend her and they will follow her to the grave. And Jesus says, follow her to the grave, you will. And notice the, the progression. She is thrown on a sickbed. The dabblers are actually brought into great tribulation. And her minions, he says, I will strike dead. Her works aren't good enough. So where does that leave us? Is there any hope there? Well, yeah, there is. Because he gives a warning to the rest of the church. I remember I used to have a, a, a sign in my office that it was a picture of a sinking ship. And the sinking ship basically said, um, underneath it, it, the caption said, it could be that your life is nothing more than an example uh, for other people to follow, not, or for other people not to follow. 
In, in other words, what we see from these people is, in a, is a negative example of what not to follow. But then Jesus follows up and gives an exhortation to the church. And what is that exhortation? In verse 23b, he says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So he says, basically, on one hand, I will strike her children dead. And there's almost like an Ananias and Sapphira vibe going on here. If you've ever read Acts chapter 5, when, when Ananias is stricken dead for lying and the rest of the church fears, Jesus is saying, I will strike her children dead and all the church will know. Then everybody, in other words, you and I included, will know that I am who? That I am he who searches mind. And that word is nephros in Greek, which means kidneys. He says, I search kidneys and hearts, and I will give each of you according to your works. I think the King James might translate that as bowels sometimes. In other words, it, on one hand, he says, I search your mind. On the other hand, I search your heart. Why is that so important? Notice what he says, and he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, maybe, let's, let's say you're smart enough not to rely on the works of of Jezebel. You say, you know, following her is a dead end. And so Jesus says to the church, I'm going to judge you according to your works. Is that what you want? Before you answer the question, remember what he said before that. Remember going back all the way to the beginning, the first verse we looked at, that he has the eyes that, that uh, pierce like flame. That Jesus knows your works. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows every intention of your heart. In other words, no matter what it looks like on the outside, Jesus knows what's on the inside. No matter how much you might rationalize, maybe you're doing your taxes. And you rationalize, eh, it could go this way or it could go that way. You know, even if you can make it look good, Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. Jesus knows your relationships with the people you work with. He knows your relationship with your wife or not. He knows how you treat your children or not. He knows everything about us. And given the fact that he knows that, do you really want to trust in your works? It's, it's an option, but the question is, is it the best option? There's one more coming up. He gives a word of encouragement in verse 24. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. So on one hand, he says, I judge you each according to your works, but he says, the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. You see, on one hand, it's, like, it, the, it's sort of like the children's catechism. You ever do the children's catechism with your kids? I used to love doing the children's catechism with my kids, and you ask them the question, especially when I would say, you know, Flannery Abbey, can you see God? And they'd say, no, but he sees me, right? And so is there any hope knowing that God sees everything about you? And Jesus says, yes, for the rest of you. In other words, in every church I've ever been at, there's sort of like a bell curve. And on one end of the bell curve, you have maybe 10% of the people that don't care about anything, really. On the other end, you have people who care about everything. I mean everything. And in the middle, you have people who, who are just trying to live their Christian life. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand what it means to be a good father, a good mother, a good son, or a good daughter. That's who sort of is being addressed here. And he says to the rest of you who don't hold this teaching, 
Because it's easy if you're, if you're in a church or in a group. I think I've told you before, I used to hate when I was in the army and you stand in formation and you've done nothing wrong, but one person has and the, the platoon sergeant gives a lecture to the whole group. But it's really for the one person, but you feel guilty about it. And what Jesus is saying here is, is if you're not doing these things, don't feel guilty about it. If you're not doing these things, you don't need to repent of them. He says, in fact, those of you who have not learned the deep things of Satan, you can almost see him making air quotes. You see, Gnostic teachers, the different kinds of teachers in ancient years, they would claim that they could teach people the deep things of God. And Jesus here is actually, I think he's being sarcastic. He said, that you guys haven't learned the deep things of Satan. It's like when I was, a, when, when I remember when I was in seminary, there was a show called Touched by an Angel. Do you remember that show? I used to call it touched by a demon. That's what Jesus is doing here. Because it was unbiblical. I know it was good and all that kind of stuff. but Not good theology. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he says to you, do you remember that language? I read it earlier. He says, for you, I lay on you no other burden. That's the words from Acts 15 that they said before. We lay on you no other burden than that you abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from sexual immorality. That's it. The rest of you, live your Christian life. And then what does he go after? He encourages them. He defines what it means to conquer. Over, as we've gone, looked at each of these letters, he, he always talks about conquering or overcoming. And I've always said that conquering or that overcoming is in Jesus. But today, Jesus actually defines it. And he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. And he just right there defined conquering. Do you see it? I didn't expect you to. It has to do with my works. Remember the progression I told you to follow. It started out with the works, uh, her works, Jezebel's works, or your own works. And here he says, whoever keeps my works to the end will be actually given authority and ultimately be given this thing called the morning star. And why is it important here to notice? You see the word keeps? In, in our vernacular, when we talk about keeping something, we tend to translate that in our heads as obey. Right? So we say, do you keep the law? We really mean, do you obey the law? Do you keep God's covenant? We really mean, do you obey God's covenant? But really, over and over in the book of Revelation, usually this word is translated like this. He who holds fast my works until the end. In other words, it's the one who embraces my works is the one who will overcome. Do you want to overcome? Do you want to conquer? Then the question is, do you, want to, do you trust the works of Jezebel or someone else? Do you trust your own works? Or ultimately, do you trust the works of Jesus? And by the way, the, the, the construction here is not the works that Jesus has prescribed for us to do. It's not shorthand. He's just saying, my works, the things that I have done, those people who hold fast to what I have done, they will be the ones who conquer in the end. And what is it that Jesus has done? You hear me say it all the time. Jesus has obeyed the law of God perfectly where you and I did not obey the law perfectly. Jesus has completed every bit of work that was expected of you or of me and he obeyed God and then he actually went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin and then rose again for our justification. And by justification I mean so that we could be declared righteous in God's sight. Which is of those three would you rather have? Do you want to hold fast to the work of Jesus or hold fast to your own works? 
hold fast to the works of Jesus or hold fast to the, to the works of some other teacher, some heretical teacher, really. What it means to conquer in the context of the gospel is not in doing anything, but really, in fact, it's holding something, and it's holding Jesus himself. And that leads to the promises. What are the promises he gives? Verse 26. He says, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, as even myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. So this is interesting because this is uh, part of this is a quote from Psalm 2. And remember, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And by messianic, I mean it points to this great king who would come, King Jesus. And it says that that king, when he comes, he will be given authority and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and he will break the earthen pots into pieces. So what, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that to the one who overcomes in me, to him, I will give him the authority. In other words, the, there's this chain of command that the Father gives authority to the Son and the Son will give authority ultimately to those who have conquered in him. And that authority apparently is over the nations. And the, where it says rule them with a rod of iron, that isn't a scepter like a king would carry. That's a club that a shepherd would carry and it would be capped with iron the easier to dash something's brains out with. It's pretty violent imagery. And he says to the person who conquers in me, I'll give them authority over the nations. They will break, the earthen pots will be broken in pieces. In the ancient Near East, apparently, before you went to battle, you would write the name of your enemy on a clay pot and you would dash it on the ground and say, so, so it might, will be to my enemies. And Jesus says that all of your enemies will be conquered and that you will conquer all of your enemies. What's your greatest enemy? Your greatest enemy is sin and death that's been conquered in Jesus. It's been taken care of. But it isn't pie in the sky. I mean, think about it. if you lived in some place like Thyatira and you constantly felt beaten down, you constantly felt like the man was sticking it to you, and you thought, when is this ever going to end? Jesus is saying, someday, you who feel beaten down, someday you will rule the angels. Remember, that's what the Apostle Paul said. The church was squabbling over something, lawsuits. And he said, I can't believe this. You, someday church, will judge the angels and you can't figure out an issue between two people in the church? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? That the strong and the powerful and the mighty will inherit the earth? He didn't say that. He said the meek will inherit the earth. So if you feel beaten down, if you, you feel like you're at the bottom of the pile, you're actually in good shape and in good company because someday the last will become first. What does it mean ultimately to rule with Jesus and have authority with him? I have no idea other than that it will happen. And the last part of this is, is interesting. He says, and I will give him the morning star. And that, that one sentence is the, is the fodder for Ph.D. dissertations. People aren't really sure of what it means. Remember Numbers chapter 24, it was promised that a star would come from Jacob. Some people think it means that. Some people think the reference really is to the, the star Venus. You see, that one, of, one of the symbols for the Roman Empire was the star Venus, was the planet Venus, which shows itself very brightly as a star. And some think what Jesus is really saying is, do you feel like the Romans are keeping you down? Someday you're going to be in authority over them, that the slaves will become the masters. 
But the book of Revelation itself gives us a clue. And I think what the clue it gives us is it tells us really the way to understand this is, is sort of through the lens of the Wizard of Oz. Remember Revelation 22, Jesus himself says, I am the morning star, or that he is the morning star. So when Jesus says, I will give you the morning star, what is, what is he getting at here? And I think if you understand the Wizard of Oz, I think it helps make sense of the, this idea in the book of Revelation. And remember in the book of Revelation, I mean the book of Revelation, the, book, the Wizard of Oz, what happened? It's that all of the characters, you, you had Dorothy, you had the Scarecrow, you had the Tin Man, and you had the, the Cowardly Lion. And at the end of the Wizard of Oz, what were they given? All of them were given something that they already possessed, and yet they weren't certain of that. Remember the scarecrow? He wanted a brain, and yet he was actually pretty smart. And so what, the wizard, what did the wizard give him? He just publicly recognized what he already was and what he already possessed by giving him an honorary degree. Remember the, the tin man wanted a heart. Well, he had more heart than anybody. And he was given public recognition of what he already possessed with that clock heart thing. And the cowardly lion, remember his whole life he wanted courage, and yet Jesus basically, or the wizard says, you already possess it. And since you already possess it, all I have to do is recognize that publicly. And if anyone had, had uh, room to be upset in that movie, of course it was Dorothy, because she had the shoes on the whole time and she had a walk in them. He could have said at the beginning, just tap your heels, he didn't. But what does he say to her? I'm just going to publicly pronounce what you already possess. You already have everything you need right now on your feet. Click your heels, and that will take you home. And so when Jesus says at the beginning of the book of Revelation, I will give you the morning star, and we know at the end of the book of Revelation that he is the morning star, what does that mean? It means that someday it will be publicly pronounced, it will be made public that we will be given the morning star, and yet what Jesus is saying is, I will give you then what you already possess now. You possess me. You possess all of the benefit of my person and work, all of the benefit of this thing we call the gospel now. And then how does he close this letter after he says that? He simply says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we look at this letter, on one hand, um, it, it, it tells us to, to, to be orthodox in our thinking, but also to be loving in our practice. But more than anything, it tells us to trust you, to overcome in you by holding fast to the works of Jesus rather than the works of our, that we produce or someone else. I pray that you would work that into our heart corporately and into our hearts individually here in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, if you're able to stand, I'd ask you to stand and we will sing the doxology together. <laughs>